So we began our seven-week discussion about <clears throat> what the Buddha had to say about the spiritual path, this path of awakening, and how it lines up, how it illuminates our own experience, and in particular, in particular illuminates how it is here, how suffering arises, how it ceases. And the Buddha was very clear that what he uncovered in his own practice of paying attention, cultivating this intimacy and non-grasping, this way of being, and the freedom that came from it, he was very clear that he uncovered something that was already there, this path. So we don't even, you know, we might, because of habit, call it the Buddhist path or the Buddhist teachings, but he didn't refer to it that way, of course. He called it, you know, Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. He's like an underlying um, path that exists there, a capacity. And the image that's used in one of the discourses is, um, you know, it's as if, this is from the Sutta, it's as if a person traveling along a wilderness track were to see an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by people of former times. They would follow it. Following it, they would see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by people of formal t former times, complete with parks, groves, ponds, walled and delightful. In the same way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by awakened beings of former times. And what is that ancient path? Just this noble eightfold path of right view, or you could say view that is in, in alignment with the way it is. Wise resolve or resolve intentions that are in alignment with the way it is. Same with speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. All of these aspects of the Eightfold Path in alignment with nature, with the way, the underlying truth of our own heart. Following it, I came to direct knowledge. What, did, what, what knowledge, what understanding did, did the Buddha come to? He observed this natural dynamic of our heart, suffering and causing suffering, as a natural process. He saw how it came to be, causes for suffering and suffering, how it ceased, and the path, the way of relating to our experience that leads to the dropping, the unbinding of the heart, the suffering here and how we contribute to suffering out there. He saw how it comes to be, how we plant seeds of suffering, how we can cease planting seeds of suffering, how we can live a life where we're not planting seeds for suffering in our hearts and in the world. That's what he saw. So I thought it might be nice to begin our seven weeks by just taking a moment together now, just all of us reflecting on maybe one time, maybe a few times in our lives where our heart, our mind, felt relatively unbound. Now we probably can think of a lot of moments where we felt pretty bound up, pretty tied up 
around anger, around some defensiveness, self-righteousness, hatred, even rage, terrible greed, lust, really wanting something to happen and really feeling tied up because of that strong desire and attachment to desire. But we're not talking about that. We're really inspiring ourselves to bring to mind moments when we felt relatively free and released. And see if you can get a felt sense, what did that feel like in the body? What did that feel like in the heart? And just begin to unpack that a little bit. Like what were the supporting causes as best you can understand for that moment, those moments of feeling released, relatively speaking. So please do this reflection together. So the reason I asked us to do this reflection about moments of peace, moments of release, moments of freedom, is just to begin to connect with what we've already learned about the path. And it might be nice now to take a moment and just, you know, maybe not everyone will do it, but if anybody who feels inspired, like, what has life taught us, has life taught you about the causes, like the way of relating that leads to freedom, the way that relating, that relating to experience leads to peace, to a sense of ease, and not just taking care of your own heart, but taking care of the hearts of those around you. So what are the underlying principles that life has taught us. And I'll just give an example as you think about and feel free to start writing if you have some thoughts. But I remember a time where my heart felt pretty free and pretty light and I felt uh, momentarily, you know, for, for many moments that day, uh, healed of this sort of internal weight. And I had been practicing pretty sincerely at that time. But it was the day that um, when Fricky and I got married, my partner, back in 1993, about this time of year. And uh, you know, it was a pretty small affair. We were at Afton State Park and one of the group campsites, and maybe 30 of us, 40 of us. And I just remember feeling lifted up. I mean, I, I kind of felt it energetically. and. You know, even as we were preparing and going through the ceremony, which was pretty short, and afterward having a picnic together. And so, but I contemplated it off and on during the day, like, what's going on? <laughs> and I, you know, what I discerned is 
that there was a lot of unconditional love in the crowd. And, uh, and I was sort of being bathed, feeling immersed in this beautiful, simple, but very beautiful field of love and well-wishing, presumably for me and for Wynne and for our marriage. But I didn't, you know, that's not what I felt specifically. I just felt free and light and held like really belonging for no good reason. <laughs> and now what is that? So then like the, the exercise is then to contemplate. Okay, so that, you know, however I remember that, that happened. What does that teach me about, like what underlying principle can I discern about the way forward, the path of practice? I don't know, but th this is what we can contemplate together now and share for a few minutes. So feel free, if experiences in your life seemingly have been teaching you some of the underlying principles of this path of freedom, this path that moves towards freedom and the ending of suffering for ourselves and for others, the not contributing to suffering, what distillations are you beginning to sense coming out of your own life, your own experience. Now this is a place where we really want to look at our habit to sort of think we know it intellectually and then sort of to repeat some teaching that we've heard. Oh, I know the, the answer, the appropriate answer. But we really want to connect the answer to what our experience has been teaching us. Even if you sound like the Buddha, that's okay. But we're not just parroting the Buddha or parroting some wise person or some interesting statement. And then, you know, feel free to write and feel free to read what other people are writing. We'll just take two or three minutes now. So I'll stop talking so you can jot down and some people are already starting to write. And we'll keep this up uh, later, even at the end of the class. You can scroll through if you didn't get enough time to connect to what people are writing. And it's really inspiring and I think appropriate to presume that our life has been uh, teaching us all along. <laughs> and that's a good thing. And, you know, to whatever degree, you know, there's been some present moment awareness connecting the dots, well, we're learning what has been contributing to our suffering, the suffering of others, and what isn't. And, uh, the, you know, in that way, the only thing that's really dangerous is losing our capacity to be a learner, you know, which is just another way of saying forgetting to be mindful forgetting to be intimate. Because when we're not intimate, when we've, you know, because of the force of habit, have decided unconsciously mostly to not connect, to not feel, to not be aware of what we're feeling, then we've, lo we've lost the opportunity to learn from our life. And we're just acting out habit energy, doing what we've done before, getting the same results. 
So here's how the Buddha, you know, his own articulation, a little bit what we've been doing in the chat, this is how the Buddha had described, like one time right before the Buddha died, a day or so before he passed away, a person came to see him. And Ananda, who was sort of caretaking the Buddha, lying under a tree outside, um, tried to discourage the person, you know, hey, the Buddha, this is not a good time to see him. And the Buddha overheard this and invited the person in. And um, the person had this question that the Buddha just dismissed. He's basically saying, you know, I've been listening to a lot of different teachers they all seem they all be, seem to be saying they know the way they know they understand the path, do they? And the Buddha said, "Set aside that question." And then, what the Buddha said to him in any doctrine, in any discipline, where there is this noble eightfold path. <clears throat> There will be, where there is no Noble Eightfold Path, where there aren't these elements, there won't be awakening. And where there, where people are practicing in this way, there will be awakening. I mean, that's basically what the Buddha said. And it can sound, when we don't reflect on this, it can sound like, hey, this is the only way. But remember, the Buddha is pointing to not something he owns. He's pointing, pointing to this simple way of bringing awareness to these aspects of our life. The Eightfold Path is all about bringing awareness to the subtle, to the medium subtle, and to the gross. Basically, bringing awareness to the different aspects, the different frequencies of our life. So at the subtle end, we have the, uh, the wisdom, the place where our underlying beliefs and views lie mostly unseen, therefore subtle. So we need to bring awareness, we need to actually be curious about this more subtle level. And I'll talk about that a little bit tonight. And we have to bring awareness to this middle level of our lives, this like, how, how's my mind doing? Emotionally, mentally, psychologically, what, what's moving in the ecology of my mind? And I have to bring awareness to this more gross part of my life. How am I doing in my relationships to others, with others? How am I behaving? What am I not seeing here? So, when the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path, he's just saying, if a human being isn't cultivating, isn't uncovering this capacity we have to be intimate with a relatively gross the middling, the relatively subtle aspects of our life, if we're not learning how to be intimate and learning how to connect with the way it is, we're not going to wake up. And if we're doing that, there's nothing to stop us from waking up. If we're actually developing this capacity that we have to be intimate, we're going to wake up. And to me, it's a really, uh, yeah, it's really conducive for faith. There is a path. Now, even <clears throat> excuse me, even if that makes a lot of sense intellectually, oh yeah, it makes sense. You gotta we have to be connected, being distracted, being numb, being lost in thought, being swept away with obsessive this and that. Of course, that's that can't be the way. 
but we actually have to, in order to develop the kind of persistence and commitment and steadfastness, because, you know, culturally, <clears throat> we're mostly being conditioned to be superficial and distracted, and we have to overcome that very powerful cultural conditioning towards superficiality and distractedness and chasing sense experience. And we have to instead get really devoted to stabilizing present moment awareness so we can bring the stable, non-judging, compassionate presence to the ordinary level of being in relationship with other human beings. How am I relating right now? You know, I had this, I said this thing to this person, and what's still reverberating in my heart? What can I learn from that? What am I sensing in the room around me and this person's body language? Right? And it isn't these thoughts, it's actually a more simple and raw presence because we've connected that bringing awareness to life with movement towards freedom and avoiding the unnecessary suffering. Now this work that we do, this path that we walk, nobody can do it for us, and it's it's interesting, it's a very, <clears throat> on the one hand, it's a very personal thing we have to do, this awakening process. And it's best done in community. Nobody can do it for us, but it sure helps to be around other people who recognize the value in learning how or uncovering this capacity to see clearly, to feel deeply, to be connected with our experience and to learn from that. There's a traditional Buddhist teaching goes like this, and it really, for me, is about this central principle um, that the Buddha teaches, it's, which is this principle of self-reliance, that nobody can do it for us. And this traditional teaching goes like this, birth will end in death, youth will end in old age, Wealth will end in loss. Meetings will end in separation. All things in the material world are impermanent. The Buddhas cannot wash our sins with water. They cannot remove our suffering with their hands. They cannot transfer their insights to us. All they can do is teach the Dhamma. I am my own protector. And that, you know, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's really a kind of growing up in spiritual life when we, you know, I think it's really appropriate to call on the beneficent forces, the forces of compassion and kindness and wisdom. But even that is something, is a way of taking care of ourselves, is bringing our mind, our heart, to the fact that there are other wise, loving beings that care for us, that wish well for us. But still, knowing that can be really grounding and supporting, and still 
we have to connect with our experience as best we can. Because reinforcing the habit of denial and distraction has consequences. So the Buddha talks about the path in uh, um, <clears throat> two ways. One is this more mundane way, just ordinary person like you and me wanting to be more free from suffering, more free from stress, more free from heavy entanglements, you know, problems basically, that just come with having a body, come with having relationships in a world where power is limited and some people have it and some people don't and we're always navigating that territory of power and possession and belonging and this just is inherent in life and the Buddha says in one of the discourses practitioners just as a pot without a stand is easy to tip over and a pot with a stand is hard to tip over so too the mind without a stand is easy to tip over, and a mind with a stand is hard to tip over. And what is the mind's stand? Just this noble eightfold path. So do we need a stand? Right? Do we need a way to, you know, it's really this shared and cumulative wisdom of our ancestors, the Buddha included, having paid attention to their life, they've shared what helps. And it's basically these ways of bringing awareness to life. And there's a threefold way of talking about it and an eightfold way of talking about how we bring awareness to life, to experience. Buddha says, practitioners, ignorance is the leader in the attainment of unskillful qualities, followed by lack of regret and lack of wholesome concern. In an unknowledgeable person, person without insight, immersed in ignorance, wrong view arises. In one of wrong view, wrong resolve arises. Right? The intentions we have aren't helpful. And one with wrong intention, wrong resolve, we have wrong or unhelpful speech. We speak in ways that cause problems. Someone with wrong speech, unhelpful speech, they act in unskillful ways. Someone with wrong action, unskillful action, generally lives in ways, earns their livelihood, finds their, you know, way to survive in the world in ways that cause harm. And it goes on, you know, the kind of effort we make, the way we are mindful, the way we stabilize awareness, all is going to be off. So it's really the birth of the whole path getting off and therefore being living in a way that causes suffering for ourselves and others. And this is really central to what the Buddha discovered 
the path is fundamentally about wisdom, about habits of misperceiving and abandoning habits of misperceiving and learning how to be intimate and see clearly and how what that sets in motion. So the second half of this discourse, clear knowing, seeing things as they are, is the leader in the attainment of all skillful qualities, followed by wholesome regret, wholesome concern. So this birthplace, this place of wisdom, this is really the initial sort of getting on the path, is realizing when I pay, when I'm clearly aware, paying attention in a clear way, then what arises because of that clarity that willingness to be a little bit more intimate is a very natural, wholesome regret and wholesome concern. And some of you might remember if you were listening to the weekly Dharma talks I gave in the winter, I talked for about a month about this initial insight and I called it the insight into it matters. <laughs> like how I am right now, how I'm showing up, how I'm understanding, how I'm acting, it matters. What my mind is doing matters. How I'm viewing things, how I'm judging things, it matters. Because all of that, how I'm showing up, it's leaving an impression in my heart. And it's probably leaving impressions in other people's hearts too. It's like we're cutting a groove. And every moment, the way we're relating is cutting a groove. So to the degree we get that it matters, then there's going to be this birth of wholesome regret and wholesome concern. That's just another way of saying that the heart realizes this moment matters. And the chronic problem for us human beings, we know theoretically moments of life matter, but just think today, or even right now, even you know in the hour we've been together tonight, there have been so many moments where the actual way my mind, my heart was showing up was as if it didn't matter very much. Because if I know it really matters, then I'm going to be attentive because of compassion. Oh, it really matters. Like if we were teetering on the edge of a cliff, and therefore the conclusion in my heart is, it matters, Mark, pay attention, you know, I probably would not be very forgetful if I was on the, you know, the edge of a big cliff. I'd be very attentive because it'd be very deep in my mind, my heart. You know what? It really matters now. Don't space out. But that's not how we live most of the time. We live as if this conversation with this person, this way of interacting with this thing in my life, this way of paying attention to my body or being connected or not that connected to my body doesn't really matter. It's not that important because I don't have that wholesome concern and wholesome regret. The regret is the cumulative wisdom where I've detected those moments where I wasn't that intimate and the problems that arose because I wasn't really that connected. I wasn't really that interested I was sort of dismissive of my life or dismissive of my experience and I acted in some way that caused myself, caused somebody else some real harm 
and now I have this very useful and appropriate wholesome regret, regret. Honey, don't do that again. Don't space out. This matters. How you're speaking, how you're acting, what you're aware of, what you're not seeing, all of that matters. There are implications. Wanting life to not matter is just another way of causing yourself and others harm. Knowing that it matters, initially it might feel a little bit tight to know that it matters, but it's a step in the right direction. Because we can stay awake and we can begin to learn more and more. So he ends this section. Uh, again, he, the Buddha goes through these eight limbs of the path. The first two are the wisdom, white view and right resolve. Remember the word right, sama, is the Pali word. It gets translated as right. It has for a long time now. But it but that word actually means like right wisdom or right view, right attitude or intention or resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So these are the eight limbs. And the articles that I put in the email, you know, you can memorize. It's good to memorize this list of eight. Um, the word right really means in alignment with nature. So wisdom that is in alignment with the underlying nature. Intentions or resolves in the mind, in the heart, that are in alignment with what's truly skillful. Speech that's in alignment with nature, with truth, the way it is. Action that are in alignment with non-harming. Livelihood that's in alignment with non-harming oneself or others. Energy or effort that's in alignment with the stabilizing and healing of the mind. Mindfulness that's in alignment with the nature of reality, the way it actually is. And then concentration or the stabilizing, settling of the heart that's in alignment. Right? It's a natural settling, not a forced settling. So this right isn't so much a judgment as much as the whole path is about aligning with the way it is. Buddha knowing Dhamma, what we chanted earlier in the evening. Here's an interesting way the Buddha talked about that. And this is really at that initial or mundane level where we're talking about it matters. And he kind of spelled it out in some detail. Like, knowing it matters is really having... Like, we may not know much, but we know that it matters. And that's like what in Buddhism we mean by starting to trust or to align or to, in a way, we're submitting to the law of karma. That whether I like it to be true or want it to be true, the quality of my mind, view, and intention, it matters. I can't create a world where my view, my understanding, and my intention don't matter. I live in a world where it does matter. There is karma. Intentions matter. Like uh, in the tradition, you know, we say that everything rests on the tip 
of motivation or the tip of intention. It really matters what intention is moment by moment. We're planting seeds based on the quality of intention. And we don't get a you know, we don't get a sort of freedom or a you know, a pass because we weren't aware of what our intentions are. And it's not, you know, intention is a pretty subtle aspect of the activity of the mind. So it's not so easy to catch. But we can train. And a lot of times we're not catching the intention, the quality of intention, until we see what got set in motion. You know, and like we're interacting with somebody and the whole, you know, all hell breaks loose and that person's angry at us and we're angry at them and it's really a heavy scene. And then later we might trace back and we realize, oh, I was playing that gotcha game. I didn't realize it, but I got hurt and then I wanted to get even. So I acted in a way or I spoke in a way to try to get even with that person and then it got, you know, and then it got ugly. And then we both started to really hurt. Okay. I didn't see that intention to want to cause harm, to want to put that person in their place or, you know, whatever that thing that was a little off, but it was subtle, so we missed it. And something got set in motion, and later we realized, oh my God, that wasn't skillful. But we didn't realize it in the moment because the mind was unaware. There wasn't enough stability of awareness to notice that the tip of that motivation and what the particular taste or quality of that motivation was. It happened so quick. And the mind has this sort of habit of justifying its impulses. <laughs> you know, because it's my impulse, it must be right. It must be appropriate. But what we're learning is, it's almost like uh, that wisdom awareness creates a pause where we can really sense. So the Buddha spells out a few other aspects of this mundane right view. So it's really what the law of karma has taught us. right? So the initial um, liberating understanding that arises in an ordinary human being is it matters. It matters how I'm relating. It matters with what kind of intentions I'm acting and living my life. And um, part of that, that is the sort of the birthplace of beginning to sense what's skillful and what's unskillful. Because I know it matters, I pay attention. And then my mind is willing to open. Well, if somebody's been paying attention for a long, long time with a lot of integrity, a lot of continuity, paying attention, they might get really skillful of aband at abandoning what is unskillful and cultivating what's skillful. You see, and then just even in that, I can start to open that, you know what? It might be po possible for me, for any human being, to develop in a way and become basically a very beautiful, a very wise, a very compassionate, saintly human being. So then we're, we're willing to entertain the idea of a Buddha, you know, and you don't have to think even about the historic Buddha, but just that it's possible, because we need to feel inspired 
to cultivate this path so that, you know, that's why we have statues like the one behind me. These are sort of placeholders. You know, each of us, we have to find whatever works for us, a good a teacher that's been really inspiring for us or maybe the more traditional image of a Buddha. But we need some idea of what is possible. We don't need to obsess about that idea. We don't need to judge ourselves in relationship to that idea of what practice looks like to the nth degree. But we want to activate that quality of love, of devotion, of what might be possible for this life. We don't want to hold back. We want to inspire some real energy so that I can cultivate the stability of present moment awareness and I can bring that to the more subtle aspects of my mind, like the view and the intention, motivation, the more gross aspect of the mind, like just the activity of my mind, the activity of emotion, and the outer activity, how I'm speaking, how I'm acting, how I'm earning my livelihood in the world. I really want to be inspired to pay attention and to really uncover what's skillful, what's helpful, what's not skillful, what's unhelpful, in all of those different arenas of my life. And the Buddha goes on in this passage to talk about like one of the things we uncover, and this is really shaping what is right motivation or right resolve. And in the tradition, there are three aspects of that. Stinginess is not right resolve, and not a wholesome motivation. Generosity and letting go, or renunciation, contentment. That is a beautiful, wholesome resolve, intention. Being mean is not a wholesome intention. Being kind is. Justifying harm, causing harm for another, is not a wholesome intention. Really valuing non-harming is. So those are the three qualities of, or um, three intentions, resolves, motivations, that naturally arise when we pay attention to our life. We come to them not because the Buddha told us, but by uncovering it directly, cause and effect in our heart. Just start paying attention. When you're relatively stingy, see, get interested what that sets in motion in your life. When you're relatively generous, when you're feeling somewhat content, when you're willing to let go, of something you want, something you have, what is that set of motion? And we'll learn directly. It's not enough to believe what the Buddha says. It doesn't really carry enough uh, weight in terms of inspiring the kind of steadfastness we're going to need. We actually have to see it directly. And we have to directly sense how the path is leading onward toward freedom. So the initial view that comes online when we're paying attention enough in life, it matters. How I'm showing up, how I'm relating matters. The motivation matters. That, you know, so the motivation often gets expressed in terms of speech and action and livelihood. That's a more, con these are three more concrete places in life where we see the more subtle aspect of view and motivation, because it's so subtle, we don't usually catch it until 
we're hearing ourselves saying something, catching ourselves doing something, noticing how we're making our way in the world, earning a living, you know, playing, dealing with issues of power and belonging. And so then we we really start to get some evidence about what's skillful and unskillful. And the thing we start to really value here is, I want to see more clearly, because I know even more that it matters. So that brings us to the third area where we're purifying the mind. We're purifying the mind by bringing awareness to the activity of the mind. And we realize that when my mind is obsessing and caught up in fantasies, caught up in lust, caught up in aversion, caught up in fear, caught up in denial, that mind isn't capable of discerning the difference between what is skillful, leading onward toward release, and what's unskillful, leading onward toward more stress. So we have to value purifying the heart. So the mundane level of the path is we like we did at the beginning when some of you wrote those beautiful comments, we reflect on our life. And just in being somewhat reflective, we realize, you know what, I think it really matters. I don't want to be a space cadet. I don't want to be unattentive to my life. I really want to start valuing being connected, being intimate. And we pay attention and we begin to discern the intentions that are we suspect are wholesome, we suspect are unwholesome. We really start to pay attention to this more gross aspect of how we're engaging the world, where we can more definitively see how we're planting seeds of suffering, how we're leading, living towards more harmony and, you know, just justice and getting along and being fair in a way that reverberates in a good way in our heart. Like we can have this sleep, sleep at night without fear that we're, you know, going to haunted by our unwholesome actions, unwholesome ways of treating other people. And then we value, you know, so we're purifying our action, then we purify our mind, and then we purify our view and our motivations more, purify our actions and our speech and our livelihood, purify our mind. The purification of the mind leads to the the happiness of having a balanced, stable, settled heart, a continuity of mindfulness. And purifying view leads to more and more peace because our motivations and our way of understanding is really grounded in the way it is. And purifying our actions leads to the happiness of you know, living in harmony living in ways that promote justice and and equity and including, like living in ways where we're including the well-being of others. It feels good in the same way that it doesn't feel good to be throwing groups of people or people that are, you know, that we don't like out of our hearts. It takes a lot of psychic work to throw people out of our hearts. And it creates a psychic wound when we've thrown people out of our heart. And when we get sensitive, when we purify the mind, so we have more stability of awareness, we start to notice it's harder to be a jerk. It's harder to take advantage. 
it's harder to be unconscious about, you know, what we're not seeing in terms of relationships and choices we make and, yeah, just systems that we're part of. So this is the mundane path that the Buddha points to. And it, you know, a lot of times we think that the path is all about seeing the empty nature, the impersonal nature, the uh, changing nature of experience. But it really begins from this more human place, the path. I'm a human being. Naturally, the self-compassion, wanting to care for this mind, this heart, this sensitive and fragile body. So quite naturally, we come to that place where we realize, you know what? Suffering doesn't just happen randomly from the some sort of random force. And it isn't that somebody's out to get me. I mean, that may be true in some instances, but, you know, like blaming God or blaming nature. We begin to see that part of what leads to suffering and leads to release is due to what how this heart is relating. We're not saying, nobody's saying that all of the causes for suffering lie in how I'm relating to my experience. We're just saying that, the Buddha's saying that, this is the place where, we're, where we are responsible. How I view, how I relate to motivation, how I speak and act and earn my livelihood, how I take care of my mind, that is the place of my responsibility. And that has real impact. That's what the Buddha is saying. And we'll still have to deal with weather, and we still have to deal with the other forces in our society, and we still have to navigate so many so-called external things. But now we have a path that really helps us relate to those so-called external things that are, in a sense, beyond our control. So they're not actually beyond our control because how we relate to those external things we've discovered really matters. So we're really going to own that. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to practice owning how I'm relating to what is not in my control really matters and that there's a lot to learn. And the idea is that what we're uncovering from this direct investigation is going to line up with the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddhist teachings are going to help us connect and be more intimate with our experience. And our paying attention to our experience is going to help us understand the Buddhist teachings. And so there's this feedback between wise teachings, a useful map from a wise elder, and our own experience. The experience helps us understand the purpose and how to use the map, and the map helps us understand, get close, see what we're not seeing about our own experience. And this is the dance we're doing. So I recommend uh, in the email, and I'll resend the email tomorrow, so if you haven't yet registered for the course, you can do that tonight. It's just on Common Ground's public calendar online. And then uh, Gabe tomorrow, Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager and one of our teachers at the center, he'll integrate all the new people who've registered into Common Ground's Buddhist Studies email list. And then I'll send it out later in the afternoon if you didn't get it already. 
and I have some three articles to start the study. Of course, if you find your own, uh, what you see as a good article about the Buddha's Eightfold Path from the early Buddhist tradition, feel free to pass it on to me and we can include it with our resources. But I'd encourage you to read, especially Sylvia Borstein's article. It's not that long. She's a wonderful elder in our Western early Buddhism tradition, uh, Vipassana tradition. So you might want to take a look at that. I'm forgetting the title of that article right now, but it's one. it will be included in the email. And then next week when we come back, remember the last half an hour, or have small groups. So during the week, during your practice, during your reflections, feel free to take a few notes or just make a mental note of what you're understanding about this ordinary or mundane path, which really gives us the general shape. It matters. Motivations matter. I really see that when I pay attention to my speech and my actions, how I'm earning my living. I really see that there are skillful ways in unskillful ways, and they leave, have an impact in my heart, and probably, or for sure, in the hearts of those around me. And I deeply value having the stability of present moment awareness, because I can't do anything when my mind is superficial, distracted, and disconnected. I need the stability of present moment awareness. That's the part of the path. It's about stabilizing um, the concentration, basically. So great to be with everybody tonight. There will be time for discussion, questions next week, but feel free to send them on to me and I'll incorporate them in the talk, the shorter talk next week too. So feel free to reach out to if you have any questions about the course and look forward to connecting next Monday evening. Take care, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.